Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith. I'm the headmaster of Bethany Christian School across the street. And it's always a pleasure to, to get to come before you and to share God's Word and, and what He's been impressing upon me. And I pray that this morning, <clears throat> this is one of the most beautiful passages because it is involving Jesus as He's going on His way to the cross and all the sufferings and injustices and shames that He endures on the way. And it's, a, it's kind of an overwhelming thing to have to preach on because you go into it knowing I can never, ever capture the beauty of what's going on here. I can't. And so just know that I'm going to do a lousy job <laughs> at that. Um, one of the last times I was up here, we were talking, and um, I showed you a picture of a dog on the screen, and I said, this is what my kids did not get for Christmas. And if you know me, I've been pushing for a dog for a very, very, very long time. I've been wanting a dog, then I got the kids on board, and then they wanted a dog, and finally I won. And well, not really, Laura said, okay. <laughs> and so we have a new puppy chocolate lab at home. In fact, one of the last times I was on this stage was during Spiritual Emphasis Week with my puppy. Sorry, Tom. Surprise. (laughs) And we were doing a, a message on how love covers a multitude of sins and how now that I've won this, I've learned that this dog, the places where this dog likes to pee, I've learned that this dog prefers carpet as opposed to grass for number two. I've, I've gone out and had to inspect, or actually not me, have to inspect stuff in the yard to try to find my daughter Leah's nipple for her sippy cup, which Laura wanted me to assure you we're not using. It was thrown away. But there is something really beautiful and having to do all that and to see all this mess and filth. And when this puppy is constantly messing up and constantly making filth and mess and everything, and you can't help but just love this little puppy. You can't help it because he's yours, right? He's yours and you just love him. And no matter what he does, you can't turn away from him. And that is just the tiniest fraction of a percent that doesn't, isn't even worthy of being compared to how God feels about us. How the Lord feels about us. Who in our messes when we go off and we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing and we're, you know, we're gnawing on our furniture. <laughs> it's the Lord's delight in you. The fact that He owns you. He's purchased you. And you are His delight. He will never turn away from you. And His love covers a multitude of sins. Today we're going to be talking about kingdoms and crosses. And you'll notice as we go through this passage, Jesus has encounters really with three different people or people groups. And every single one of them is asking the question. It's it's the same question that Jesus basically is asking throughout His ministry. And it's this. As you go through life, you're presented a choice of how you're going to focus, where your heart, where your mind is going to go. You have a choice. Do I 
fill out my life? Do I pour out my life to build up my kingdom and my glory and my fame? And I want everyone to look at me and my power and prestige and everything else. Is it all about my kingdom? Or is it about His kingdom? And when I go through this life and all the unexpected pains and sufferings get poured on me, I have a choice of whether or not I focus on my cross, my crosses, or whether or not I look to His. You see, as we go through this life, there's meaning and there's significance and there's value and there's purpose behind the most meaningless of things, the most meaningless, seemingly meaningless sufferings. If our eyes are fixed on His kingdom... But apart from that, it's all vanity. It's all wasted. We can't take anything with us. It's going to leave our fingers at the grave and everything will be for nothing. And when the crosses get laid on my shoulders in this life and I don't know how to deal with them, I can try and say, all right, buck up, Sam. Deal with it. Gird up. Or I can look at his cross I can focus on mine or I can look at His. And here's what looking at His does. It takes all of my crosses and all of my sufferings and all the pain and misery and stupid things that I have to go through in this fallen world. And it says, there is one who walks ahead of me, who has carried the cross ahead of me, who has gone and died so that all of these stupid crosses will be conquered and defeated and put away forever. For His kingdom, His glory. Amen. So we got a choice. Do you walk around looking for your own kingdom that's going to be ripped from your hands that makes everything meaningless ultimately? Do you pay attention only to your crosses? Because if you're only looking at your crosses, there's no solution of victory. They just drive you into the dirt to despair. But if you look to His kingdom, And if you look at His cross and His resurrection, all of life is flooded with meaning and beauty and purpose. And so today we see in the first encounter that Jesus has with Simon of Cyrene, we see that God is unbelievably sovereign and merciful when He chooses to lay crosses on your shoulders. Crosses of suffering. And you think, how in the world? Why in the world? God knows what He's doing. He's merciful when He gives you a cross. And the second encounter with the daughters of Jerusalem as they're mourning in the streets that he's walking through, we see that crosses make no sense if we're living for our own kingdom. And in the third and the final encounter with Jesus and the two thieves on either side of him, we learn that there's hope for anyone at the cross. So we start with Simon. Simon of Cyrene. And in and, and this story... It's rather beautiful. We don't, we don't hear much about Simon, but what little we do know about Simon, it's a very, very beautiful thing. And Scripture, it says this. It tells us in Luke, as they led him away. Now, to understand the context of what's going on here, 
You got to understand the picture. Jesus had been arrested at about midnight the night before. They come to him in the garden. They come to him with this massive number of soldiers to capture him. And Jesus is going, am I leading a rebellion? Like, didn't you have a chance to get me at the temple? Why do they come to him at night? Well, they had told Judas, we want you to look for a time when no one's around where we can come and get this guy. And Judas says, I got it. Passover night. Everyone's going to be home. It's like, it's like Christmas. All the stores are closed. Every, everybody's in their own places. Nobody will be around. We know that there's huge crowds that love this guy. Nobody will be in. The ones that love God, they're all at home celebrating Passover so we can get him by secret at night. And so they catch him at midnight. And between midnight and 9 a.m., all these sufferings have taken place. Jesus is tried in a ridiculous mockery of a trial. He's beaten, spat upon, hit with all kinds of stuff, pummeled with fists. And so the people who love Jesus, who came around and heard him and listened to him, they have no part of this trial. They're stunned the next day when they're coming into Jerusalem for their 9 a.m. prayers as Jesus is being led out. And they see the very guy who had spoken mercy and grace and shown compassion to the least of these. And as they're coming into the city, Jesus is being led out, except now his face is so disfigured you can barely recognize him as human, Isaiah says. His back is whipped to the point of ribbons and just mangled body. And everybody who's coming in is going, my goodness. And Simon is one of these guys. He's coming in from the countryside for the morning prayers. And it says, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And what God is doing here, God who is sovereign over all of this, is he's putting this man, Simon of Cyrene, in a position to be an example. What does Jesus say? If you do not take up your cross and follow after me, you can have no part with me. And here's Simon who's carrying the very cross of the Lord. And the Gospels tell us that he was forced to do this. This isn't something that he wanted. He's coming from Cyrene. Cyrene is 900 miles away. This is a huge trek. This is a place where they have a massive population of Jews. In fact, Cyrene, they had their own synagogue in the city of Jerusalem. And he's come 900 miles with his wife and his two kids. And he's standing along the side of the road, only wanting to celebrate the Passover. And Roman soldiers come up and say, you carry this man's cross. He's too weak. He's too severely beaten to carry it on his own. You carry it. Simon says, no, 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 no. I know what happens to people who carry those things. No, no, you will do it. And so Simon takes the patellum. Patabellum, on his shoulders, this hundred pound beam, and he has to carry it from the place where they got him all the way to Golgotha. And I want you to imagine he comes into this town with his wife and his two little boys, and they're watching his dad has a cross thrust upon his shoulders, and he doesn't want it. 
He knows that as he walks through the crowd, anybody who's carrying one of those things is going to get mocked. They're going to get stuff thrown at him, spat upon. Who knows whether the Romans are going to get carried away and just throw him up there. He's terrified. And his little boys who've seen this are even more terrified. Mark gives us a a little insight into this. In Mark 15, verse 21, it says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, why in the world does Mark, by the way, who's writing his gospel to the city of Rome, notice Mark names these two little guys. Why do you think he does that? Because in Rome... Alexander and Rufus are kind of a big deal. We don't know why they're a big deal, but they're a big enough deal that when Mark is writing his gospel to Rome, he says, by the way, this guy, this guy who's carrying this cross is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And when Paul writes his epistle to Rome, what does he say at the end of it? Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. You see, Simon carried that beam. God placed a cross that he didn't want right on his shoulders, and Simon carries that beam all the way to Calvary. And he gets to the top of the hill, and he hears Jesus crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He hears cry out, it is finished. He sees the eclipse. He sees the earthquake. And this guy who had come to Jerusalem only to sacrifice a lamb for the Passover found the Lamb of God. Because God was merciful. Get this. God was merciful to lay the cross on his shoulders. You ever stop for a moment to imagine that the cross that you're bearing on your shoulders might be God's mercy? That apart from it, maybe you wouldn't appreciate Him. Maybe you wouldn't follow after Him. Maybe you wouldn't fall to your knees in weakness and say, Lord, I give it all to You. It's because of what Simon experiences here that he goes back to those two precious little boys and he says, follow that man. Follow his cross. Follow his kingdom. And these two little boys that watch this train, this procession of suffering, are forever changed. Because their eyes will be fixed on the kingdom of Christ and not their own. You see, the city of Cyrene was known very much so for being militant. They were all in on this idea of a militant Messiah who would come and overthrow Rome. He would be the one that would establish Israel as this great kingdom. And in fact, when the temple is torn down in Jerusalem, Cyrene leads two of the nastiest revolts. Dio Cassius, one of the ancient historians, says this about the rebellion that happened in Cyrene. He said the Cyrene Jews arose and killed 220,000 Greeks and Romans. They're all about establishing the kingdom here, and yet Simon, who comes from this very place, his hands are ripped open. He carries the cross of the Lord, and he lives for that kingdom. God 
lays crosses on us in His sovereignty and in His mercy. I look back at my Christian life, and I'm sure that you can do this too. It's, it's, it's some, oftentimes, most times, the way that God works. When I first came to faith, I didn't come to faith because I thought, you know what, I could use some God in my life. I'm going to pursue that. Yeah, things are good. Everything's going well. But you know what, I could, I, could, I could have some God as a cherry on top. So I'll read some books. No, that's not what happened. God came into my life and he wrecked my job. And he wrecked my friendships. And he wrecked my relationship with my girlfriend. And I was briefly disowned by my parents. And my finances turned into a mess. And every single place where I thought I had a firm foothold in this life, gone. To where I was sitting there going, where, where can I look? Where can I grab? Where, where in the world do I find hope? And the guy in the office next to me said, hey, Sam, let me talk to you about Jesus. Will you come to church with me? Can I do a Bible study with you at 5 a.m.? No. <laughs> but he did anyway. He'd show up at my house knocking on my door, and I would think, go away, Perry. And God started breaking my heart. So I quit my job as a financial advisor to go into full-time ministry because I was certain that people would be happy to hire as a minister somebody who's a former addict who's been in the faith for a couple of months. Nobody took me up on it. I was stunned. And so I took this leap of faith and thought, you know, God's going to catch me and he's going to provide me somewhere to go. And you know what? No ministry hired me. And I ended up working with Sherwin-Williams. For five months, my day consisted of waking up, going into the back room of a Sherwin-Williams store, mixing paint to the right color, delivering five-gallon buckets to work sites. I miss those days. (laughs) They were awesome. You didn't take home any problems or thoughts, tragedies. Those were some of the loneliest days. I thought to myself, God, why, why did you bring me here and then not give me a job, not give me ministry, put me in some mixing paint? I was like a fine, I was doing better over there, and now you've got me doing this menial thing. And God said, just hang on. And during those days of wondering what in the world God was doing, why he laid all these crosses on me, why he disappointed my plans. And this loneliness, I'd moved down to Stewart from Vero Beach. I didn't know a soul. And so every day when I would get home, I would go into my apartment. I would have nothing to do except begin to write and turn on praise music. And sorry for this image, but even sit there and dance in my living room with God. I know that's pretty ridiculous, but awesome. And during this time of disappointment and and bearing these crosses and wondering what God was doing and seeing my life turned upside down and my dad, who thought I was brainwashed to chase after this thing and end up where I'd ended up, and it caused a mess in my life. And God was so sweet and tender. He's all I had at that time. Some of the sweetest days of my life was when God laid a cross on my shoulder and said, follow me. Lonely. Lots of tears. Lots of questions. But an amazing presence of the love of God that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. God looks at Simon 
and he lays a cross on his shoulders. And in that moment, Simon is going, what are you doing? Not me, I'm here to worship you and you're doing this to me? Why me? God is saying, because I'm going to show you the sufficiency of my love for you. I want you to see and understand and appreciate and treasure and cherish the love of God expressed in Christ for you. It is all you need and all of your crosses fade away when you get a glimpse of mine. Simon, put your eyes on me. Put your eyes on my cross. Sam, put your eyes on me. Put your eyes on my cross. And so Jesus continues, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. You see, in this encounter we see that if you're suffering if you're suffering with your eyes not on the kingdom of god none of it makes sense none of it so as jesus is walking through the city and he is tattered too weak he's got simon behind him now carrying the cross and he runs across these women who see how savagely he's been treated how much he's been beaten these are the women who've heard him they're sad over what's going on with him and they're weeping and jesus stops them pretty sharply do not weep for me O daughters of jerusalem but weep for yourselves and for your children. You see, within just like Jesus promised, and this is no new thing for Jesus, he said earlier that the days are coming when people will pity nursing mothers. Why? Because in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, the Romans are coming. Life for the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, is going to get really, really awful. They're going to siege the city of Jerusalem. They are going to slowly starve it. The people who come out, Josephus writes that during the siege of Jerusalem, those who came out of the city and were captured were crucified around the walls of the city up to 500 a day. And these are the children of these women. Can you imagine? Weep for yourselves. Do you know what's going to happen to you? This place is unwilling to recognize my kingdom. They have all rejected me. They have shouted, crucify him, crucify him. They want nothing to do with me. They want nothing to do with my kingdom of peace and beauty and forgiveness and grace and true justice. Shalom. They're going to chase after their own kingdom. So weep for yourselves. You don't know what you're in for. These people will be so wicked. In fact, Josephus says that when he finally does, when Titus, who later becomes emperor, finally does get through the walls of Jerusalem, that the soldiers had to climb over heaps of bodies as they indiscriminately slaughtered men, women, and children in front of them. This is the kingdom you wanted, daughters of Jerusalem. This is the kingdom you're going to get. And let me tell you what, when you're carrying the crosses of looking over the city walls to see the suffering and devastation that your kingdom has come to, you, you will weep 
And see, one of the things that Jesus does, and this sounds, one of my wife's friends says, it sounds like Jesus is being harsh to these people who are sympathetic to him. Buried in Jesus' opening words to them is this beautiful expression that should call them to think of what God has said to them already. He calls them daughters of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, that expression, that phrase is used 14, 14 times. Half of them are in the Song of Songs and the rest of them, for the most part, are in the Prophets. Let me tell you what Jeremiah writes after the first time Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. This is in 586 B.C. So 600 years before Jesus is declaring this, Jeremiah is talking to the daughters of Jerusalem who've just experienced what Jesus is telling them is coming to them again. And Jeremiah says, what can I say for you? This is the Lord through Jeremiah. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Let the weight of that question sit on you. Who can heal you? Look how messed up your life is. Look how messed up your country is, your kingdom is. Who can heal that? It's in shambles. And so as you follow the narrative of how God uses the daughters of Jerusalem through Scripture, you come to this next one. Micah chapter 4, 8, and 5, 2. To you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Whose goings forth are from the days of eternity? God. Here you are. Daughters of Jerusalem, after the first time the temple is destroyed, your ruin is so vast, who can possibly heal you? And Micah comes along and says, the Lord, the Lord is coming to bring kingship to you. He is going to restore you. He is going to bring healing. And then the next prophet comes in and says, oh, by the way, daughters of Jerusalem, rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They just saw that, right? They just saw their king come in whose origins are from long ago. Coming to bring them salvation and life and healing and hope and righteousness. And what are they doing? They are weeping over him as though he is a failed messiah. Do not weep for me. (laughs) This path ends in glory. This path ends in resurrection. This path ends at the ascension when I take all the saints to glory with me that they may dwell with me forever and ever and ever. Do not weep for me. I chose this path for you. If you want to weep, weep for the reason I have to be on this road, which is your sin. It's the weight of your depravity that put Jesus on that road that led Him to walk all the scars and stripes. Those daughters of Jerusalem should have seen by those stripes we are healed, as Isaiah says. Have you ever stopped to think that if you were the only person 
on the planet who had fallen into sin that Christ would still go to the cross for you. And he would do it because of your sin. We're so cold to that fact. You know, the other day, I'm letting you in into the, I don't like that guy anymore. So it, this is going to cause you to think that. The other day, my wife comes home from a, a meeting. And my wife is like the kindest, most gentle. If you don't know her, it's her. So <laughs> if you see her, you're like, yeah, she's right. Anyway, she comes home from a meeting and she's utterly distraught. Like, I don't see my wife distraught. She's the epitome of calm. And I never see her get mad. Well, I rarely see her get mad. Well, she comes home and she's, she's really worked up and she had just talked with all these precious women who she loves to pieces and sin is involved in their family and it's wrecking their family and it's wrecking their home and it's sucking the joy right out of their home. Why? Because people are living for their own kingdoms. And it had come and it had wrecked them and she had been talking to several women throughout the course of the day who had been crying in agony and in pain over some of the stuff that they were dealing with. And my wife comes home and she is mad. Mad at sin. Not at, not at the situations, but at sin and this world and how upside down it is and how gross it is. And that if we could just crucify our flesh and follow after Christ, how nice things would be. But no. And so as she's getting mad and worked up, which I don't get to see very often, I'm kind of entertained, and so I let one of these out. Smiling. Wouldn't advise it. So Laura then lights into me, which she never does. And then I think, I must win this battle. And so I bring out all the junk, like, like brilliant husbands do, and we go to war. All right, let's see who's going to win this one. You're the one who came home ridiculous. I was in a good mood. And, and then she does this, which is utterly despicable. She says, can we pray? And everything in me goes... No, I have to win. Does that sound familiar, guys? In my heart at that moment, everything in me is like, I must win. It's my kingdom. I need to validate myself. I have to be the one who ends up on top because it's all about me. And the million things I do as a husband or as a father or as a headmaster, or as a friend, that I mess up the sins that are besetting to me. Do I weep over that? Do I weep that that is precisely what put Christ on the cross? Do I care? Or can I go, can I stand at the foot of the cross and look up at my crucified Savior? Can I go to Him in glory and see His nail-pierced hands and feet and say, Jesus, I know You gave everything for me, everything. You spared no expense for me. But I am not giving this sin to you. Try saying that out loud to the Lord. It's true. You're almost precious enough to me, Lord, for me to lay this down. I hate that. 
I hate feeling it. I hate more so that it's true of me. Do you know how many times the Lord calls me to do something and I go into my, my place and all I can think is, man, I'm standing at the foot of the cross with a gentle Savior who's compelling me to follow His instruction, His wisdom, life and beauty, and all I can do looking at the cross that is the price tag of my sin. And I can look at my wounded Savior and shrug. You been there? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Charles Spurgeon says this really, really beautiful thing. He says this, You need not weep because Christ died. One-tenth so much as because your sins rendered it necessary that He should die. You need not weep over the crucifixion, but weep over your transgression, for your sins nailed the Redeemer to the accursed tree. To weep over a dying Savior is to lament the remedy. It's wiser to bewail the disease. Weep not for me. And you know the beautiful thing about our Lord is as we come to Him broken and shamed, with all of the tears coming down of how unworthy we might feel, you know what the Lord does? What He always does, even when we're in the midst of our shame, He sings over us. If we are in Christ, He's never seen it as far as the east is from the west. Your sin has been removed from you. And so while we have to wrestle with this I need to follow Him. I need to relent. I need to crucify my flesh and my desires that lead me away from Him. Christ is up there going, this is my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. He sees Christ's perfection envelop you and wrap you up. His delight is never, ever, ever conditional upon your performance. Thanks be to Christ. But man, that price, that cross bids us to come and die with Him, to pick up our crosses and to follow Him. And all these stupid sins that entangle us and prevent us from running and prevent us from showing this world what a Christ-like life would look like. Get them off of me. Because like those daughters of Jerusalem, if I'm just running and the crosses are all over me and I'm suffering and I can't see the cross, if I can't be set free from it, if I can't put my eyes on His kingdom first in the midst of all the mess, none of it makes sense. My suffering doesn't make sense. The crucifixions outside the city wall don't make sense. The destruction of Jerusalem doesn't make sense. No suffering ever makes sense apart from Christ. And so then he goes on speaking to these women, and he says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. In other words, if your eyes are not on the kingdom, if your eyes are not on His cross, the best you can do is wish for destruction. Mountains, fall on us. We wish we'd never been born. We wish we never bore children. What a stupid world. That's not what Jesus says to them, by the way. Notice it's they. 
The future generations of faithless men, who on this planet endured more as a mother, more heartbreak, more agony in watching her son go through unbelievable torment and torture? Is it not Mary? What does Elizabeth say to Mary? It's direct contrast. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking inspired, right? And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is he she is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In other words, when we're advancing the kingdom, even if it comes at the cost of suffering, blessed are those wombs. But if there's no kingdom in mind, then all the suffering's in vain. Even the mountains. The people without faith say, mountains, I... I can't deal with this life. Just fall on me. I despair. There's no hope beyond this. But Jesus says repeatedly, if by faith you say to the mountain, pick up and move and throw yourself into the sea, it shall be done. Those obstacles will not stop you, even the massive ones, by faith. And so Jesus closes his comments to them by saying, for if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? If they do these things when God walks among them, if they're this wicked when the author of life is with them, what are they going to be willing to do when he's gone? It's like me as a headmaster saying, if I go into a classroom and the kids are out of control and I walk in and the kids are still out of control, And I leave there and I'm like, man, if they do this when the headmaster's here, what are they going to do when he's gone? That's the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. He's a a green tree. He's full of life. He has no reason to burn. But there's a lot of stubble and dry stuff and messed up sinful stuff that deserves judgment. What will happen to that when I'm gone? And so two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, which is Calvary in Latin from Calvarium, which means skull, or Golgotha, which also means skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right-hand side and one on his left. And there's an important point here about criminals or robbers. Some, some versions translate it. The idea, the Greek word is lestes. And so in Greek, when Jesus says, you come at me with swords and clubs, am am I leading a rebellion? The word for rebellion there is that same word. In other words, these guys are insurrectionists. They are on the crosses because they took a stance against Rome. They were for their own kingdom, right? They go to the cross to die because of what they had done to push their own kingdom. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ which is the king of the Jews? Save yourself and save us. And we know that this guy is the one who has no faith. Or we presume that he has no faith. But can you relate to him? Don't we do this all the time? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You know how many desperate situations that I've been in where people are carrying enormous crosses? 
where they are filled with tears, where they are begging God to fix a marriage, where they are begging God to save family members, where they are begging God to do all these things, that in my mind I'm sitting there going, come on, God! Aren't you God? Aren't you sovereign over this? If you are, glorify yourself. This would look good for you. This would advance the kingdom. Just do it. Heal this person. Draw this person. Move. Fix this stuff. What are you doing? Come on. Been there? It's hard. I can remember talking with people who were going through vicious disease who ended up succumbing to it. And they would talk about the mornings at 3 a.m. where they're enduring unbelievable sickness and vomiting. And they're wondering, nobody sees this. What are you doing? So easy to want to go to the God who we know is good, who we know is faithful, and say, why don't you fix this? Come on! The reality is that God uses those. He's not above hearing those cries. And He uses that passion, that longing, and that hope to draw more beautiful things out of it oftentimes. You know, the person who told me that story I just said to you was talking about how his wife was sitting beside him at 3 a.m. as he was sick, and she was combing his hair with her hands, her fingers, and reading the Psalms to him. What an eternally beautiful moment of love. And even if it's just that, that picture of how a wife loves her husband. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So here you have these two criminals, both going to the cross, One who has no faith. He's only about his kingdom and his agenda, right? And he's crying out, come on, save yourself, save me. And the other one comes along and says, I have no right to appeal. I deserve this cross. My life is a mess and anything I get in this life is totally and absolutely warranted because of who I am. I'm a mess. But don't mock this guy. He's the Lord. He has done nothing wrong. He is being crucified unjustly. And he looks at him and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I want you to stop and think how absurd that statement is. Jesus is nailed to a cross with a crown of thorns on his head. There is, he's, he cannot move. He's immobilized. He's hours away from death. He is totally weakened and poured out. Remember me when you come into your kingdom? That makes no sense 
unless you have faith that this man on a cross is going to destroy sin and destroy death. And you recognize that you deserve this very cross that he's hanging on, that he doesn't, and that this man who is seemingly at the end of his hope is going to destroy death and conquer sin. And all he asks is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is one of the most hopeful passages in the Bible. You know, in, in theology and in seminaries and in different denominations, we all go to battle over what's required of religion. I want to simplify it for you right here. Because Jesus in the very next passage says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So here's this thief who's lived a disgusting life. He gets it. He deserves it. He's on the cross immobilized. He is never able to get down from that cross to be baptized, to take the Lord's Supper, to hold a Bible study, to do membership vows, to do anything at all. There is no work he can do. He cannot even move. And if you understand crucifixion, you know he can barely talk. Jesus, remember me. This wretched sinner. My life is a mess. I, don't, I continue to chase after my own kingdom. And I'm on this cross because I pushed for my own kingdom. But here in my moments, as I come to the end of my rope, Lord, I recognize I am a mess. I don't want to push for my kingdom anymore. Remember me when you come into yours. There's three things he does there that's real simple. God is good. He is just. He has done nothing wrong. I am a mess. And my only help can come from the Lord. I've made a mess of things and I deserve the cross that Christ received. But three, Christ has taken the cross of God's wrath from me. He has conquered death. He has defeated my sin. He has clothed me in perfect righteousness. And so now all I say is, Lord, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's our hope. Every single person in this church right now deserves the cross that he hung on. Personally, you do. Your sin is Christ aside. And He takes that cross from you. He showers you with His righteousness if you'll take Him by faith and live for His kingdom. Take up your crosses and follow Him because your crosses will be laid down at His and He will destroy all of them. He will swallow up your crosses by the power of His cross. And all we have to say, all we can do is say, Lord, I'm a mess. You are not. You are good and faithful. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here's the deal. He will. 
the Lord right now, and we don't say remember just this, the Lord is infinitely interested in you and your sufferings and your heartache. He sings over you with delight. It was for the joy set before him, Hebrews tells us, that he went to the cross and endured the shame. What's the joy? You are. We are. Don't weep for him. Weep for all the ways that we don't even come close to loving him as he deserves. And then rejoice that he sings over us anyway. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness to us. That you sing over us. That you love us. That that as you carried your cross, there was not a step. As you went to Calvary, there was not a step that your love did not dictate those steps. Lord, I thank you for everybody in here. I pray, Lord, that we would keep our eyes focused on your kingdom and our eyes focused on your cross, even as we carry our own. I thank you for your mercy and for your goodness. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody in this place who's carrying their own crosses without looking to yours, if there's anybody in here who's living for their own broken kingdoms, Lord, that you would mercifully come and draw their hearts to yourself, that they would see the beauty of what it's like to follow after a God, an infinitely valuable, precious, glorious God who would give everything to secure our future with him. You are so good. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.